We're looking at Noah's Ark tonight. Uh, my children love this story. Uh, it's one of our favorite, one of the most prominent stories in Scripture that everybody's heard, uh, regardless of where you grew up, if you grew up in the church or not. Everybody knows the story of Noah. And um, I posted, you know, on Facebook my question. I asked a question about it, and uh, it was, why do we give our children Noah's Ark play toys? And uh, there are a couple of answers. First, my cousin asked, why not? Um, And then the next answer was Breck, because everyone likes horses. I actually think he's on to something. What else? Uh, Jake Adams has to say, because the toys are something that will be remembered by the child forever. The toys are a reference to when Noah obeyed God and did the whole story we all know. And so as kids grow older, they will begin thinking more and more about what they're playing with, creating an opportunity for parents to tell their children about the works of God. Okay, that's actually a decent answer. I totally mocked him. Uh, and then Brian Miesemer, ha-ha, and as I grew older, I remembered all my old Transformer toys, and now that I'm older, I'm thinking about how I can better serve Optimus. <laughs> Yeah, Christian Crouch, catching the irony, there's nothing that says innocence in childhood like complete destruction of the earth. <laughs> Soren, failing to uh, remain apolitical because we, make, because we aren't free market enough to make our children work for them. <laughs> and then Ryan Pate, there's a real, a lot of cynicism in these answers. <laughs> That, we'll be, that, that way we'll be good parents if we give our kids Jesus things to play with to ease the guilt of not sharing the wonderful story with them. Ouch. And then Willie Powell actually has the best one of all, my favorite, because post-apocalypse is all the rage right now. <laughs> I love that one. Um, no, but it's funny. It is, there's an interesting irony in the fact that it's the most prominent Bible children's toy. I went on Amazon.com, and every toy manufacturer has a Noah's Ark. We have Noah's Ark little people at our house. And we have this vision of the flannel graph Noah's Ark that we got when we were kids about how, like, Noah's in the Ark and, like, the panda bears and the tigers and the dogs and the cats and all that kind of stuff just had a fun time, like playing Foursquare and Hopscotch and all this kind of stuff in the Ark. Well, they were on this, like, year-long cruise, and it was so much fun. And in fact, and the reality is, there's kind of a point in your life where you're like, okay, that kind of funsy image of Noah's Ark actually isn't reflective of what the episode's about. And so tonight, I hope that we can address it in a more serious manner. And what we're going to do, it is is chapters actually 6 through 9. I would encourage you to go home and read them. I'm not going to address all of them. I'm going to read the passages that you have on the sheet, chapter 6, verse 1 through 14. And then chapter 9, 1 through 13. So we're going to look at the picture of creation before the flood and after the flood because you know what happens in between. And uh, this is the Word of God. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. For he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. 
And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was very corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark. A lot of events unfold between now, between then and uh, chapter 9, verse 1. This is Noah actually getting off the ark. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the flesh of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your life blood, I will require reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, for his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast on the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider your word, as we consider how serious these words are, I pray that they would weigh heavy upon our hearts, that your spirit would press them into our hearts, into our minds. We would grapple with the reality of them, that we wouldn't lightly take them, dear Lord, but rather listen to you, and engage them and be changed by them. Be with us, Jesus. We cannot change unless you are present with us. Teach us, dear Lord, in your name we pray. Amen. It's one of the most well-known stories from Scripture. Most of you all know it. And after we get over our childhood fascination with merely animals, uh, and actually entering the story, there's typically kind of two reactions we have when we get past our sentimental stage. And the first reaction we have often is actually, this is, okay, maybe at some point you've struggled with, like, this is kind of a ridiculous story. It's ludicrous. Like, really, a flood over all the earth? Like, that has massive consequences for geology. Like, there would be evidence of that always and forever all over the place. It just doesn't make sense scientifically. It's a ridiculous story. And tonight is actually not a night where I'm going to address that. Um... There's all kinds of schools of geology out there that show there's all, you know, all this scientific evidence of how the flood did occur or didn't occur and all this kind of stuff, whether or not it was a localized flood just to the Middle East or if it was a universal flood. It seems from Scripture 
when God talks about wiping away every single thing, that he intends a universal flood. I'm not going to address that. I'm going to make one point. There's several points. We can talk about it later if y'all want to. But I'll make one point that I think is persuasive. On every continent and in every ancient people group, there's a flood story. Ancient people groups in Australia, there are ancient records that have been dug up from archaeology, reveal that they have a flood story. The same is true of Eskimos in Alaska. The same is true in Greenland. The same is true in Brazil. The same is true among the Druids and the Celts on the, on the British Isles. The same is true in Siberia and Russia and China and India. Every continent has multiple people groups. There are over hundreds of actually archaeological finds where they find documentation. Every continent has multiple people groups that testify to a flood story. It's the most testified historical event across the globe in history. That alone, to me, is very persuasive. Um, out of the hundreds and hundreds of ancient artifacts that attest to it from different cultures all around the globe on every continent, 88% of the stories involve a favored family that some kind of deity favors and preserves. 70% of them involve a boat. 66% of them, the flood comes because of sin and evil. 67% of them involve animals being saved. 57% of them, the survivors land on a mountain. So not only are there stories everywhere, there's actually a lot of a lot of the stories complement one another. Another interesting aspect, too, is the closer you get to the Middle East, the more and more the stories actually agree with each other. The further you get from the Middle East, there are more scattered details to the story, which would completely make sense if the human race started over again at Mount Ararat or in the mountains of Ararat. And so you might encounter the story as ridiculous, and there are other things to talk about, but I offer that up as evidence And more likely, our reaction to this story when you begin to grapple with it is maybe frustration and maybe even a sense of anger of like, how can this be the God of the Bible? How can this be the God that we've talked about, that we've heard about, this Jesus, this God of love? And that is a tough kind of emotion to deal with. And that's a struggle to deal with. And that's really what we're dealing with tonight. How can I believe in a God like this? This is the darkest moment in human history, period. This is God saving eight people, and that's it, and destroying everything else. Eight people. There's a lot more than eight people in this room. That's this front row plus Jake and me. And that's it. (laughs) I like Jake and I's chances. I think we got a good shot. Um, But that's it for the globe. It's a dark moment, and it's a tough story. And this is what I want us to get tonight. I want us to get an understanding of sin, to embrace it personally and corporately, and an understanding of justice, because it's in understanding those things that we actually see this is a story of grace, that this is a story of mercy, that this is a continuation of Genesis 3.15, where God said, y'all took the world that I created and I gave you something beautiful and I wanted you to work in it and I wanted to delight in you and for you to enjoy your relationships And you rebelled against my design, and you rebelled against me and frustrated it. And Genesis 3.15 says, but I'm coming back to fix it, and I'm coming back to save you. This is the story of God saying, my covenant promises still stand. This is a story of mercy, is what it is. And begin to understand mercy, we've got to talk about the problem of sin. In Genesis 6, 1 through 5, especially verse 5, but uh, we want to look at those first couple of verses. 
God is looking at the world, and he observes this. This is um, chapter 5. There's about 1,600 years between the beginning of chapter 5 to the end of chapter 5. We get these generations, these family lines that are coming down. And remember, in Genesis 3.15, we told there are two lines. There are the lines of the people that follow God and the lines of the family of people who don't follow God. That line becomes the line of Seth, who is another child Adam and Eve have. Those are the line of people that follow God. And then there's the line of Cain. Remember, he's the guy that killed his brother Abel. Those are the line of people who didn't follow God. And so we get to chapter 6. There's been 1,600 years since the time of Cain and Abel. And man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. And the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took them as their wives as they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit cannot abide with man forever for he is flesh, and his day shall be 120 years. Remember the purpose of humanity. God created Adam and Eve to work in the garden, to work on the earth, to multiply, to create more image bearers of God, to enjoy creation and be delighted in by their father. But what had happened in those 1,600 years is Adam and Eve's sin permeated all of creation, and instead of being a blessing to each other and to creations, the world looked a lot then like it does now. It's full of selfishness, and it's full of anger, it's full of rage, it's full of pain, it's full of abuse. Instead of being a blessing to our neighbors, people were building fence between them and their neighbors. The world is full of hate. And there were two lines that came down, and people read this passage and they wonder, what are the sons of God and the daughters of men that were attractive? Some people, some scholars would say well, the sons of God might be angels, because elsewhere there actually are times where it kind of appears God refers to angels. And then other times... And the daughter of men were humans. I think what the text, what's clearly actually being uh, shown is the line of Seth and the line of Cain. That the sons of God were what we know who the sons of God are, those who trust in Him. And the daughters of men are the line of Cain. And so what we have here is intermarriage. And it's something that comes up a lot in the Old Testament. It's one of those weird things we're kind of slightly uncomfortable with. It's like, it's not okay for God's people to marry not God's people. And that's what God's seeing happening here. That's what's grieving his soul. That's how he's observing the sin of man. Now, why does the Bible choose intermarriage as one of its big issues in the Old Testament? That's kind of a tough question to deal with. And I think it chooses intermarriage for this reason. There's probably no more clear indicator of what is sweet to you or dear to you or central in your life than who you're attracted to. The type of person you're attracted to actually reveals a lot about who you are. And you see, what it means to trust in God, what it means to be God's people is to have faith in Him and to trust in Him that He is your first and foremost love, that He's your dad that gives you security, that He's your king that you serve in everything you do. He's the counselor who guides you. His word is sweet to you. You read it and you follow it. He's your comforter that extends compassion. He is the fundamental, fundamental reality that defines your existence. He is everything to you. He is your Lord and He is your Savior. That's what it means to be God's people. Are you willing, can you really be deeply intimate with someone who's diametrically opposed to him? See, this isn't bad Christian marriage advice like, oh, the Christians, they're so mean. They tell people, oh, Christians can't marry non-Christians. Any marriage counselor worth his salt, whether or not he believes in Jesus, will tell you, if you believe God is everything for you and your whole reality is defined by him and his love for you and your love for him, and they are utterly opposed to God, that's a horrible marriage. 
You don't have to be Christian to agree that's a horrible idea to get married. And you see, the intermarriage that's taking place actually reveals something, doesn't it? It actually reveals what the sons of God, in fact, really value. When you open your eyes, are you attracted to those who love your God? Are you attracted to those who love your other idols? Are your values, the values of beauty that are defined by the world, a waist, a bus size, a, a resume, whatever it is, you see, our worldliness might be most clearly exposed when we see who we're attracted to. Do you see character, and do you see that as beautiful? And you so God actually seeing when they so lightly, so blithely just kind of marry these women who care nothing for their God, He actually sees into their heart. He actually sees what they truly value. And so He kind of draws His judgment. In verse 5, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that in fact every intention of the thoughts of His heart was only evil all the time, and the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. We need to learn a couple of things about sin. They're on your outline. The first one is this. It's internal. We have this horrible, horrible, horrible inclination in American Christianity, but also because we're all Pharisees and it's been a problem since all of time, to think that sin is something you only do on the outside. To think that these idiots who do stupid things on the weekend are the quote-unquote sinners, and because we do good things on the outside, we're not sinners. The first thing God says about sin here is it's inside. He saw the weakness of man was great on the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And see, this is the truth. We can do exactly what the Pharisees did. We can look really tasteful on the outside and still have a heart that is only evil all the time. These are the people Jesus gets most fired up against. Sin is not what you do. Sin is who you are. Sin is who we are. I've been in a lot of accountability groups. Here's what bad accountability groups do. Bad accountability groups go, how many times did you do this or not do this this week? How many times did you read your Bible or not read your Bible? How many times did you gossip? How many times did you look at that on the internet? That's what a bad accountability group does. What a good accountability group does, it says this. Do you love Jesus? Do you love your neighbor? Good accountability group goes to the heart of the issue. It's not measuring performance every week. It's not measuring your outward actions. Your outward actions can be all over the place. Where's your heart? Who do you love? Sin is internal. God's looking on the heart of men. It's also extensive in us. It is only, he looks in the heart and he sees that it's only evil all the time. Only evil all the time. It's not sometimes we make bad decisions, you know, we're basically good people, and sometimes we make mistakes. People have a good heart. You know, they had a good heart in it. They meant to do the right thing. According to the Bible, you can't think that way about humanity. You can't believe in the Bible and believe that. And in case, um, in case we think that we're not only evil all the time because we look at our actions and we see that, ah, you know, I don't really do bad stuff on the outside, we're reminded God's not looking on the outside. What He's doing right here is He's seeing into the heart of man. He's not like us only looking on the outside. It's internal and it's extensive. All of us loves all of us. That's what that means. And it's all seen by God. 
He sees you in the privacy of your dorm room. He sees you in the relationships you're trying to shield from everybody else. Most of you, um, most of all, he sees into our hearts and he sees your thoughts and he sees your motivations and he sees our imaginations and he sees our fantasies and he sees our rage on the inside and he sees our selfishness on the inside and he sees the passive-aggressive junk on the inside. He's not like man. He doesn't look on the outward appearance of things. Nothing is ever hidden from God. He sees it all. He sees it all. He actually sees it better than we do. And it's simple childishness on our part to think that he doesn't. I think a lot of times the way we live our Christian life is we live it like little children when they put their hands over their eyes and think you can't see them. That's what we're doing. We're thinking, oh, it's in the privacy of my dorm. It's in the privacy of my heart. God can't see me. And he's kind of chuckling. He's not really... But I have that image of him chuckling like us, like we do, when a child covers his eyes and says, you can't see me. It's internal, it's extensive, it's all seen by God, and it makes God sad. This is the most shocking and wonderful and horrible part of the passage. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. The high point of God's creation was creating an image bearer, creating his children. And it had gotten so bad, imagine how bad it has to get to look at your child and say, I regret that you were born. God is not this kind of weird principle or concept that's out there that doesn't have feelings. He has feelings. He has the feelings of a father. And he has the feelings that a father has when his children indulge in self-destruction. And the feeling is, he regrets the day that he made them. And not only that, it grieves him to his heart. That word grieved to the heart is used of Jonathan when Jonathan finds out that his father Saul wants to kill his best friend David. Grieved to the heart is used when the sons of Jacob find out that their sister Dinah has been raped. This is the language of deep sorrow. Jesus weeps over our sin. He weeps. He grieves. His heart is dark and his heart is sorrowed. It weighs heavy upon him. The sin that we so lightly regard. He grieves over your sin. Two points of application. First thing is, y'all, we're a room of religious people. And there are strong warnings to religious people. There are strong warnings to religious people that are persuaded of their own goodness in Scripture. In John 5, verses 40 and forward. This is God's, this is Jesus speaking um, to some religious people. I know that you don't have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another one comes in his own name, you receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is no one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope, if you believed in Moses, you believe me, for he wrote to me. But if you do not believe his writings, how you believe my words. Here's what he's saying. You religious people, you're condemned by your own religion. That's what he's saying to us. We've got to understand sin, and the dangerous condition for most of us in this room is as religious people, we're usually not very good at being persuaded of it. We're usually really good at being persuaded that we're kind of better than most people because we voted Republican, right? Because we go to the right church, right? Because we don't do what they did. 
The other reason we've got to understand sin is because mercy is not sweet until we understand sin. The cure is not sought until we understand sin. Jesus will not be precious to you until you grasp the reality, the depth, the internal nature, and the extensive nature of sin and how deeply it grieves God. And most of all, sin demands justice. And this is where the passage begins to get scary. We see that there's actually logic to God's justice. This is one of the most troubling aspects of American Christianity, right? We don't like this notion that God punishes bad people, right? But you see, our own lives, first of all, cry for justice all the time. We're all crying for justice daily. I know because I talk to you and you give me your cries for justice, and a lot of times you're actually right. But we're all sitting in this room and we can all think of five people who've sinned against us that we want justice on. But none of us think there's any justice reserved for us. I can already tell you, everybody in this room, someone else wants justice on you, me included. We all think we're innocent. And you see, actually, even though our lives cry out for justice, it's actually foolish to expect God to not be a God of justice. How horrible would it be if God was not a God who could execute justice? Would you really be interested in a God who either, A, was powerless to execute justice, or B, could but chose not to? That would be the worst kind of God. That would be a wicked God, a God who is content with evil. That's ridiculous. To understand the necessity of justice, we've got to understand a couple of things. And the first thing is this, and this is just one other aspect of sin. Sin is personal violence against God. Sin is personal violence against God. Now, that sounds like extreme language, but listen to what David says in Psalm 51 when he repents and struggles with the fact that he seduced his neighbor and and murdered her husband. This is what he says. Seduced his neighbor, murdered her husband, and he says to God, I sinned against you and you alone. Now, how could you say that in a circumstance like that? It's because of this. What you do to God's image is how you think of God. We talked about this in the first week. What you do to God's image is how you think of God. To gossip is to slander God's image. To talk about someone and to rejoice in their foolishness, whether or not your gossip's true or not, is slandering God's image. In, in Genesis 9, 6, we actually already read it. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? Because God made man in his own image. Because what you do to man is what you do to God. It's desecrating his image. Sexual immorality. When you do things with your boyfriend or girlfriend, or maybe somebody you don't even know, that are only reserved for marriage, you're defrauding and destroying the dignity of God's image. It's violence against God's image. When you alienate somebody, you're alienating God's image. When you ignore them, when you lead them into sin, when you lie to them, when we leave someone cold on the street, when we delight in other people's pain, we're defrauding, we're doing violence to God's image. Okay, in high school yearbook, how do you demonstrate disdain for somebody in your high school yearbook? You color over their image. You defraud their image. That's how you show their disdain for them. The way God sees our disdain is He sees how we treat His image. And so justice is necessary. And the second point is this. Sin, first of all, is violence against God personally in His image. Secondly, the bigger the person, the bigger the consequences. I borrowed this illustration from a friend of mine, Brian Sorgenfrey, the campus minister 
Mississippi State. And he makes this point. We had the, the snow this past weekend. And um, those kind of settings, we all get a little crazy. We get outside and do things we don't normally do. And um, we've, I'm sure we've all thrown a snowball at a passing car before. This is a safe place. You can admit that. We welcome everybody. It's okay. But let's say this past weekend you throw a snowball at a moving car and they slide off the road into a ditch. Right? Freak out. Maybe you're a Christian and run and check on them. Maybe you're not and you run away. I don't know. Um, they slide into a ditch. You find out their complications. Somebody got injured in the crash. It got ramped up a little bit, right? You find out that there's actually a woman and a small child in the car. It gets a little bit more intense. You find out they died. It gets a lot more intense, right? Then you find out that it's the wife and the daughter of the president. Things get really serious really fast, right? The higher the magnitude, the order, the importance of the person, the more severe the punishment. We actually practice this in our own country. Y'all can joke about death threats to each other, right? You can about everybody. (laughs) The bigger the person, the bigger the consequences. To defraud God's image demands God-sized justice, and this is what we have in this story. And lastly, I want you to see this. Justice is the most fair thing God does. The world is full of destruction. He sees that his people don't care about who he is anymore. They're desecrating creation, desecrating themselves. The Nephilim, if you're curious, I think are just warriors of old. They're like cool guys. They're the culture setters, whatever that is. The um, LeBron Jameses and the Terrell Owens and the Lil Waynes, if you will. Justice is logical and fair. Let's get back in the text. Um, God's justice is his relentless fairness. Is God giving people exactly what they want? In verses 11 through 13, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth. Behold, it was corrupt. All flesh corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end all flesh of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. That word destroy is the same word corrupt that's left all throughout the passage that preceded it. Do you see what God is doing? He's saying, they're corrupting creation, I'll give it to them. They're doing what they want with it, I'll just speed the process up. up. That word destroy is the same word that's been used of what man has done to creation and to himself. And God is saying, here's what my justice is. It's relentlessly fair. It's giving you exactly what you want. You want me to leave with my goodness? Absolutely. That's what you get. You don't want to have any business with God? That's precisely what He gives. God gives everybody exactly what they want. He's very fair and He's a great listener. Our sin is, God, we don't want any part of you. We want to do this thing by ourselves. And His justice is, okay. God is good. Creation is God. God made beautiful creation. His goodness is the beauty of creation. His goodness is the community He's given us. His goodness is the friendship and the relationship with Him. His goodness is life. And God's saying, if you don't want me and my goodness, I'll withdraw. His justice is giving people exactly what they want. People who don't want to have anything to do with God, that's actually what He gives them. It's not unfair. 
Now we have some objections normally to that because that sounds harsh. It sounds unfair. It's because we're Americans and we're idiots, but it sounds unfair. And maybe the objection, some of the objections are, well, couldn't he wait? Right? Couldn't he wait for a while? This is 1,600 years he waited. 1,600 years. And then on top of that, it's going to be another 120 years. When it says his days shall be 120 years, I don't think he's saying that man's going to live for 120 years after this, um, that you know, the natural lifespan will be 120 years. What he's saying is, yeah, I've done 1,600. I think I've got about 120 years left of this. He did wait. Well, couldn't he tell people then, right? Second Peter 2.5 tells us Noah was a preacher of righteousness. You know what God did? He sent a preacher for 120 years to preach. He told people for 120 years. He did wait. He did tell people. Couldn't he warn people? We already learned what are the wages of sin? Death. Every death is a testimony to what sin does to us. Every death is a warning of what sin is. He's been warning people all along. Couldn't he just let sin go unpunished? A God who doesn't hate evil is a wicked God because that's a God who's comfortable with evil. And what's what's interesting is that in everyday life, we think the opposite. That it's actually evil and foolish to leave sin unpunished. The worst kind of parents, right, are the parents who don't punish their children. Right? The countries that descend into anarchy and bloodshed are the countries in which the governments can't execute justice. We falsely apply this standard to God that we don't apply anywhere else in reality. It's kind of A, arrogant to kind of think we can say, God, shouldn't you leave sin unpunished? But B, we actually demonstrate the opposite of that complaint. We actually demonstrate we really want justice really badly. We really want to be parents that care for our children. We want governments to sustain personal property rights and personal rights in all manners. We want justice in every other aspect except for when we find out we're guilty. And so the flood comes. And you all know the story. And this is a tough story. But this is what we're to learn from the story. That His justice is always tied to His mercy. His justice is tied to His steadfast love, to His grace and His kindness and His patience. And we employ the exact same principle when we fight cancer that God employs in the story with Noah. The flood was chemotherapy for creation. The flood was God destroying what is evil so that He may preserve what is good. And that brings us to the sweet promises of God. Throughout the passages, we consider God's just response to sin. We also see His merciful promises all throughout this passage. And they begin, actually, in verse 8, even before the flood. God's weeping, grieved over men, plans to destroy him. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. He walked with God. Now, some people read these passages and they see, hey, y'all, you got to be like Noah. You see, Noah, he obeyed. And he obeyed, and by obeying, he got favor from God. And we think the message is that, listen, there's good people and there's bad people. And God's going to save the good people and He's going to destroy the bad people, so be a good person. 
That's a lot of way we hear the gospel preached. If you know the story later, Noah is not like a shining example of like moral well-roundedness. Later in chapter 9, go and read it. He gets, okay, let's just picture what Noah went through right here at this moment. Speaks to God. God says, hey, I need you to make a boat, and I'm going to bring animals from around the globe, and I need you to keep them on that boat for a year while I destroy the earth. Okay, this is a pretty intense existential moment right here. All right? Then it all happens. Moses is on the boat for roughly a year with his family, the seven other people God saved when he destroyed the earth with all the animals. They didn't play four-square hopscotch. It stunk, and it was hard. And then the boat lands, and they get out of the boat, and he worships God. Okay, these are intense moments in life, right? When you're one of eight people God saves. He walks off the boat, builds an altar to God, hears the covenant promises of God, and you know what he does next? He gets unloaded. He gets absolutely wasted in Genesis 9. He passes out drunk and naked. So, the application of the passage ain't be like Noah. (laughs) The story is not be like Noah. The story is God is merciful. If you heard Noah obeyed, so go and be like Noah, and Noah obeyed, and that's why God favored him. You actually haven't even read the order of the passages. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. That word favor in verse 8 is actually the Hebrew word for grace. It's the first time it shows up in Scripture. Noah found a grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was like everybody else. He didn't obey and so gain the favor of the Lord. The Lord placed His favor upon him and so he obeyed. The Lord extended grace to him. Noah was under the curse like everybody else, and yet God chose him not for anything in Noah, but because God is good. And that's the only reason why. This is a story of mercy. And when God's grace works in us, when it becomes sweet to us, then we obey. Then we walk with God. That's the way... Moses described it. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. It doesn't mean Noah is perfect. We have testimony of the fact afterwards that he was, per- that he was far from perfect. But it, what it does mean is that he walked with God. And that's an image that's used for the Christian life all throughout Scripture, on in the New Testament. And Mark Driscoll describes it this way, and I love the way he describes it. Walking with God is this. You take your dad's hand and you walk with him. And wherever your dad goes, you go. And whatever your dad's doing, that's what you do. And your dad leads you, and he loves you, and your dad protects you. And your dad keeps you out of harm's way, and your dad keeps an eye on you. You trust him, you know he loves you, and you know it's safe to be with him. And you hear his words, and you say, if that's what my dad says, I'm going to do that. It's not just believing in God. James 2 says, even the demons believe in God. That's not what it means to live as a Christian. It means living as a Christian is walking with God. It's God becoming your daily companion knowing He's with you always. Do you walk with God? That's an, Noah is just an, he's a sinner like all of us. And God had favor on him. It was His grace extended to Noah, which is the grace of God in the story. But the way we know He tasted deeply of the grace of God is He walks with Him. It was grace. But God just didn't place favor on Noah. He also covenanted with Noah 
and with all of creation. When we read in chapter 9, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Do you hear echoes? The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon the beasts of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, on the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Do you hear things you've heard before? In Genesis 1, do you see what God's doing? He's not destroying creation. He's restoring creation. He's restarting it. The story is not of Noah. It's not a story of judgment, merely a story of judgment. It's actually primarily a story of mercy, a story of second chances, a story of new beginnings, of new starts. And we love these stories. We love the beginning of every semester. Why? Because it allows you to put away some of the stuff you didn't like about yourself last semester. We loved graduating from high school because you were allowed to put away things you didn't like about high school and come here and be a new person. You're looking forward to graduation because at graduation you're finally able to put away things you don't like about yourself and step into a new city and step into a new job and start over again. That's what this story is. It's the same principle at heart. God is merciful. He's starting over again. The story is not be like Noah. The story is, do you know the mercy of God? Do you know that He looked at sin and He didn't destroy it? He started over. American Christianity has this... I always pick on American Christianity like it's this amorphous, easy to put... I don't know. I don't know why I do that. But we've adopted this language of personal relationship with Jesus. It's not altogether inappropriate. We have a personal relationship with Jesus. But I don't think it's actually always helpful for us to talk only in those terms either. Because Jesus is not... You're in a personal relationship with everybody in this room. That could apply to all kinds of relationships. And we've all had personal relationships that have ended. There's several aspects of personal relationship that I certainly hope are not an aspect of my personal relationship with Jesus. It's okay if you use that language. It's not helpful and it's not actually very precise in how we relate to Jesus. He's not just a friend. He's not somebody that you can bounce in and out of relationship with. The language isn't always helpful. And here, God begins to give us better language for talking about our relationship with God. God said to Noah and his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you. A better word for our relationship with Jesus is we have a covenant relationship with Jesus, with God. And what that means is that it has a structure to it. Is that it has a, a binding nature to it. It's not merely just, we're acquaintances, sometimes we're close, sometimes we're far. This formalizes and institutionalizes and structures the relationship. Our relationship is better described as covenantal than personal. Covenantal absolutely includes being personal. And a covenant, in simple terms, is this. It's a formal relationship in which two parties bind each other together, and make specific commitments to each other. The place where you see this most often is at weddings. Elizabeth and I are in covenant with each other. We're in, entered into a covenant marriage. We stood up in front of people. We made binding commitments to each other. And there were stipulations to that that we keep. And we're in covenant love. And we're prone to think, oh, well, that's not, you know, that destroys the passion and the personality and the interest and the intrigue of a relationship if you, if you formalize it and add these structures to it. no. The best, richest marriages are the ones where the principle of covenant is held in the highest regard, where we say, no, I'm with you always, and that's my covenant. 
Do you know the kind of security that gives a husband and that gives a wife? As opposed to, oh, I feel really intense romantic feelings for you today. That's deeply insecure. It's covenant that actually gives marriage a lot of richness. It's covenant that gives us security with God. God enters into covenant here, and His covenant with Noah is actually a covenant with you too. If you pick up in the language, He makes it with Noah and all of His offspring and all of creation. And this is His covenant with you, that He with, promises to withhold judgment from water and to offer you mercy. The covenant of Noah is another way of God remaining committed to Genesis 3.15. It's another explanation. This is another footnote to Genesis 3.15 that God would send a Savior. The promise to never destroy the world by flood again is God revealing his patience and his kindness and his forbearing and his steadfast love to bring the one who will come and conquer sin and evil on our behalf. The seed of the woman referred to in Genesis 3.15, the Messiah is Jesus. Now look at the sign that God gives of his covenant. Elizabeth and I exchange signs for our covenant, something that's often part of covenant ceremonies. And God gives Noah a sign. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The rainbow is the sign of God's covenant here. And the word for bow here is an interesting word. The word for bow here is actually instrument of war. I have set my instrument of war, my battle bow in the sky, as a sign of this covenant. You see what God's doing? He's saying the thing by which I conduct my justice set aside, but also notice where it's pointing. It's pointing up. Do you see what it means for history to go on at all? That God doesn't close up shop on creation, but instead he grants a second chance. He creates a new beginning. And you see it comes at the expense of his sorrow and his pain. And he promises never again well, I unleash my war bow on creation, but I can't make that promise to my own son. And Jesus is staring down the bow. It's pointed up at him, into the heart of heaven. God's covenant is a covenant to extend mercy for our sins at the expense of his own sorrow and pain. Jesus on the cross receives the wrath of God that we deserve for those who trust in him. For God to continue to endure the sin and evil that we bring into creation, it costs Him everything. And here, thousands of years beforehand, He's saying, I'm committed to paying the price for anybody who would trust in Him. God is no less just now. He's no less committed to justice now as He was then. But His promise and this offer is to anyone who would receive it. And he offers in Jesus to suffer the death and alienation that our sin deserves. And that's his offer for you. If you're a Christian, this is what the text does for you. We're prone to think that we're saved by grace, but we kind of retain this Christian thing by works. We've got to hang on. We've got to do our stuff or God's going to get upset with us. Look at the rainbow. Do you see it's God's covenant, his promised mercy for you? Do you see he preserves his people? Do you see he preserved Noah? He showed Noah grace and he saved Noah. And he cared for Noah. It's God's promise that there's no more wrath for you. There's none. You become a Christian by grace and then you don't live 
by works. You live by grace. You live by sweetly delighting in the grace of God, by being reminded of it, by meditating upon it, by praying through it. The way you're changed is not by deciding that tomorrow you're going to be a better person. The way you're changed is by remembering God's steadfast love for you. This is a sweet story of mercy that God has on bitter, angry, selfish, sinful, destructive children. This is a story that, in fact, is very sweet to tell our children. Let's pray.